This week, a study of meerkats and their growth spurts with some unusual ingredients. There's always like boiled eggs boiling in the kitchen and thousands of boiled eggs every week, that's for sure. And how forests make it rain. Trees can't run for shade when there's a lot of sun, but what they can do is emit vapours and become seeds for cloud droplets. Plus a Neanderthal construction project deep inside a French cave. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 26th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Time for a dip into the file labelled Questions a Five-Year-Old Would Ask. This time the question is, how are clouds made? The basics are already nailed. Water droplets start to gather around tiny aerosol particles, anything small enough to be floating through the air. Enough of that happens and you get a cloud. But physicists want to know where the aerosol particles come from. And it's an important question for climate scientists too, who find clouds hard to model but know they can have important effects on global warming. Scientists thought that man-made emissions, particularly sulphur dioxide, were key to the formation of aerosols and therefore increased the amount of clouds. But a set of new papers question whether sulphur dioxide is really the only player. They find a much more natural process might be conjuring up clouds. Jasper Kirkby has been creating clouds in a special chamber at CERN. Davide Castelvecchi called him to learn more. If you were to um, go up into a cloud and pick out a droplet, first of all, it would be very small. But if you evaporated it, you'd find that there was a little seed inside, and that's known as a cloud condensation nucleus. It's um, a small suspended liquid or solid particle in the air, and all air on Earth has hundreds, if not thousands, of these for in every cubic centimetre. But without them, there would be no clouds in the sky. How do you go about studying clouds in the lab? What we have at CERN is we've built the cloud chamber. It's a large stainless steel chamber, ultra clean, and it's filled with humidified air and selected trace gases, which exactly reproduce the conditions and temperature of a chosen part of the atmosphere. So water by itself does not just turn into a cloud and and use it out to understand what kind of uh, gases in the atmosphere can form these seeds, these microscopic particles that then water condensates around. We've essentially been assembling the list of the key vapours that are responsible for particle formation in the atmosphere. What was previously known is that sulfuric acid was key. Sulfuric acid arises from oxidation of sulphur dioxide and 80 or 90% of the sulphur dioxide in turn in the atmosphere is being produced by burning fossil fuels. So up to now, it's been thought that human activities and human pollution was essential to form aerosol particles in the atmosphere. But we found it was not sufficient and that it needs a helper. It needs other vapours to uh, help these particles form. And we've been finding out what those vapours are. Now, sulfuric acid would never be the only deciding factor in whether clouds form or not, because other things can lead to clouds forming, like dust in the air. So was the thinking that if humans were not around, and if, in particular, if, if our industrial emissions were not here, then clouds would not exist? Uh, pre-industrially, before human activities altered the climate and added pollution, it's thought that there was much less cloudiness than there is today. But the amount is not well known. 
the only way we can understand how cloudy it was in the pre-industrial atmosphere is to measure the basic physical and chemical processes and then put those into global aerosol models. So then here's where your experiment comes in. You kind of recreated uh, conditions that were similar to what would happen in the atmosphere above, say, for example, a forest, correct? That's correct. What we, what we did was a series of experiments where we only put into the chamber ultra-pure air, water vapor, ozone, and some so-called biogenic vapors. These are vapors emitted by trees. Uh, and in this case, it's something called alpha-pinene, which, even though the name may sound unfamiliar, it gives pine forests that beautiful smell when you uh, walk through a pine forest. And that's all we put into the chamber. And we then watched what happens. And according to present wisdom, we shouldn't have had any particles form, but we found abundant particles form. In other words, the discovery was that these so-called biogenic vapors, after oxidation by exposure to this ozone, they form vapors which can then form particles very readily and they don't need any pollution. So does that mean, in a sense, that forests are creating their own climate? It does, actually. And they do that because then they get rain. It's certainly interesting to speculate. And it's important to realize, of course, this is speculation. We can't prove it. But it's metabolically very expensive for trees to make these uh, vapors. They haven't evolved to produce these vapors to make it pleasant to go on hikes through forests. There must be a deeper reason than that. And I think uh, it takes very little imagination to to say that they are protecting themselves. Trees can't run for shade when there's a lot of sun, but what they can do is emit vapours and become seeds for cloud droplets. Now they'll spread over a much bigger area, so trees are actually not directly helping themselves now, they're helping their neighbours even 100 kilometres away, but trees are definitely affecting the biosphere. It's a beautiful mechanism for trees to control their environment. Is this good news for the climate or bad news? That depends on your perspective. Aerosols and clouds are accepted by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as the largest source of uncertainty in the current climate change. The new cloud findings are going to ultimately lead to a, a reduction, somewhat of a reduction in the so-called climate sensitivity, and that in turn will lead to a, a somewhat of a reduction. It'll point in the direction of less warming. Now, it's important to state that there will be other uncertainties in aerosol and clouds that may go in the opposite direction, but at least from the point of view of the new cloud result, this is going to lead to a small reduction of the projected warmings. That was Jasper Kirkby of the CERN Cloud Chamber. By the way, in their name, CLOUD is actually an acronym. It stands for Cosmics Leaving Outdoor Droplets. Yeah, me neither. You can find the two papers from the CERN group at nature.com forward slash nature, and there's another paper in science this week on the same topic, so look out for that, CLOUD fans. Coming up in the research highlights, dating spiders dice with death, unless they bring a gift. And later on in the news chat, Adam and Richard are primed and ready to talk about mosquito factories and quantum computers built from the stuff of normal computers. But first, there's a cave in southwest France called Brunichel Cave, and it holds what might be the world's oldest basement. 
1990, cavers exploring the bowels of the cave happened on a series of circular structures made of hundreds of broken stalagmites that had once been piled up to form walls. One of the structures was nearly seven metres wide. They thought they could be around 50,000 years old, like the burnt animal bones they found there. When the archaeologist leading the excavation died in 1999, work on the cave stopped. That is, until a few years ago when paleoclimatologist Sophie Verhaden bought a vacation home nearby and got curious about the cave. She and her team dated the structure and found it was built more than 175,000 years ago. The team's discovery is described in Nature this week. Reporter Ewan Calloway spoke with Mary Ceresi, an archaeologist at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, who's written a News and Views article about the structures and what they might mean for underground living. What is spectacular here is that part of a wall is still uh, erected. And for me, a construction almost 200,000 years old, still partially erected, is unique. Is there any doubt that this structure was made in, in, intentionally? Well, it's, it's clearly too big to be a structure made by uh, cave bears that are known to hibernate deeps inside caves. It is also completely unknown uh, for cave bears to pile up uh, fragments because here what they found is part of a wall is still erected and that wall is 30 centimeters high still nowadays and also on the top of that several fireplaces were found within those structures and embedded within the structure. So Everything is pointing toward Neanderthals making those structures. So how did the authors determine the age of the structure and hence who was around to make it? Well, the beauty of those structures is that very soon after having been built, they were covered by calcite. So the calcite uh, being naturally formed within the cave. And the uh, researchers were able to date the calcite that was redeposited on the structure. But they, they also did measure the calcite of the stalagmite used to build the wall itself. And by doing so, they were able to very precisely date the event itself. And because those structures were clearly made about 176,000 years ago, there is probably no other option than Neanderthals to do it because we don't have any other type of humans in Europe but by, at that time. Have archaeologists ever recorded any, anything like this from, from Neanderthals before? No construction preserved as that one were recorded before for Neanderthals and not even actually for early modern humans in Europe. It's only in much recent times that we still have walls and walls foundation preserved. And that is, um, that is because hunter-gatherers usually have very light structure, and of course they preserve very uh, badly over time. I mean, I know we're getting into the realm of speculation here, but do we have any idea why Neanderthals made this and, and what this structure would have been used for? Or is that just guessing? At this stage, it, it is, I think it is impossible to tell why did they construct those structures. It is the first time that something like that is found, 
and that those structures were found more than 300 meters away from the entrance, so away from any natural source of light. So for now, it's, it's impossible to, to say why Neanderthals ventured underground. Does this tell us anything about Neanderthals and their, their cognitive capacities, the, the fact that they built this quite large structure? Well, birds, great apes, and other animals build elaborate nests. And Neanderthals 200,000 years ago were able to manufacture complex stone tools. So, on my opinion, given the technological capacities of Neanderthals 200,000 years ago, I'm not surprised that they were able to build constructions. And what is maybe more surprising for me is that those structures actually show that Neanderthals ventured underground away from any natural sources of light in a setting that is not usual for most mammals. And I think it, will, it, will, it is immediately changing um, the way we are going to investigate the underground in the future. So we are going to pay much more attention to the underground in order to understand why Neanderthals ventured underground, what were they doing uh, over there. That was Mary Ceresi of Leiden University. Find her news and views article and the original paper at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up in just a minute, compare the meerkats. But first, at the end of most interviews for the podcast or when we're producing, the studio is covered in little bits of paper with doodles all over them. And I'm sure you love to doodle too. So why don't you send us your illustration of the show and each week we'll post submissions to our Twitter feed at Nature Podcast. And here now for some doodle inspiration, it's Research Highlights with Sharmini Bundell. Do you want that first date to go without a hitch? Better bring a gift. That's the advice researchers would give to nursery web spiders anyway. Males normally offer up a courtship gift to females in the form of a tasty silk-wrapped bug. Researchers investigated what happened if the males showed up without bringing a present. They found that in almost a fifth of cases, females chose to eat giftless males rather than mate with them. That never happened when the males brought a snack for their date. Who says romance is dead, eh? Check out that full cannibalistic study in Biology Letters. Drug-resistant bugs like Staphylococcus and Pseudomonas often form tough films on surgical equipment or skin. These films stick the cells together and make them really hard to get rid of. Now, researchers have found two enzymes that can break down these films, making the bugs easier to kill with antibiotics. The enzymes break down the sugars that Pseudomonas has used to build its films, in some cases degrading them by over 90% and stopping them reforming. The enzymes could one day be used alongside antibiotics. Find the paper in Science Advances. There's a popular advert on TV in the UK featuring a meerkat called Alexander and a misunderstanding. Let me play you a bit. I am Alexander, founder of CompareTheMeerkat.com, where we compare meerkats. But lately we get many people looking for car insurance. People looking for CompareTheMarket.com. Oh, CompareTheMeerkat.com, CompareTheMarket.com. Simple. The ad really took off alongside the real insurance site. The Meerkats even have their own movie franchise. 
But if they're still interested in their original mission, the simple comparison of meerkats, they should really get in touch with researcher Elise Houchard. Houchard and her colleagues run a very long-term study of a population of meerkats living in the Kalahari Desert. They have information on their family groups, what they eat, their sizes and weights. Elise has compared lots of meerkats over the years, but for her latest study she was particularly interested in their growth, specifically how a change in social status might affect their growth spurts. She knew that in other social species, like naked mole rats, when a rat gets into a new position in the hierarchy, she can double in size. Could the same be true for other mammals, beginning with the meerkats of the Kalahari? More details from Elise. We've got this amazing study that's been going on for years and years. And we've got this amazing system where we can weight meerkats out in the, in the field. We habituated the meerkats to step on little field balances. So we go out with the balances and we just like put them next to the meerkats and then we weight them three times a day. So very early morning when they just wake up and before they eat any food, uh, we just attract them on the balances with like a few drops of water. And then we do that again uh, once they foraged for three hours so that we can basically calculate their foraging success, how successful they've been in that foraging session. And then we do that again at night when just before they go back to their burrow to sleep. Uh, and we do that up to three times a week uh, during their entire life. I love this image of them hopping on and off these little scales. Yeah, well, so what's difficult usually it's not to attract them on the scale, it's, to, it's just to make sure that it's only one individual on the scale. Sometimes it's, it's a bit of a mess to try to have like good records. So first you've got this data set, very rich data set of the weights of all of these different meerkats in a given population, but then you had to start manipulating their size. So basically in this experiment, what we wanted to know is if we identify pairs of close competitors, so basically we chose little brothers or little sisters of the same age, uh, which we anticipate are going to uh, be close in rank. We just fed the lighter individual in these pairs, just with the hypothesis that um, the one that was slightly heavier at the beginning of, of the experiment would try to increase its growth to match the artificially increasing growth of uh, his sister or his brother. And so to do that, we uh, fed the lighter individual with uh, half a hard-boiled egg twice per day for three months. And then we measured the growth of uh, both individuals over the, the course of this period. There's always like boiled eggs boiling in the kitchen and thousands of boiled eggs every week, that's for sure. So you've got this artificially fast-growing individual and its close competitor. You found what you thought you might find, rather surprisingly, that the challenged individual boosts their own growth rate to try and keep up with its competitor. That was what we expected and what we thought might be going on. We were still like, quite surprised that it's actually going on. because <laughs> We thought it's, it's a nice experiment, but it might be a bit of a long shot. And actually, it just turned out to be true. And that was, that was pretty amazing. I mean, what, what's going on to kind of prompt that to happen? What do you think is the mechanism behind this? So we are not entirely clear on the mechanism behind this. And it's one of the big questions that's actually opened by our findings. What we know and what we've managed to measure is the actual food intake of the individuals that uh, undergo these experiments. And what we could detect is these individuals that were challenged increased their food intake quite substantially. So we know that it's, it's one of the mechanisms that uh, mediates the increase in growth. Uh, that said, it's very possible that other mechanisms are at play and that this is not the only mechanism. And it's possible that, for example, they undergo changes in hormonal levels uh, that will 
change their metabolism, basically, and their physiology. But somehow they, I mean, they're, they're very acutely aware of their own social status, the social status of others in the group, and therefore something about, one presumes, something about the social structure impinging upon their brain is, is then conveying this message to their body somehow. It's a really good question, and it's also, it also means that they track the weight of their competitor very, very closely. It's very possible that they're not conscious uh, about what's happening, and it's just that they feel stressed. But it does go to show, though, that, that something like an individual's growth trajectory, which you might assume would be quite solid and quite set, is, is actually quite flexible. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's very clearly one, one, of the, one of the very important implications of these results. So obviously what we already knew is that they're very plastic and that if there's a drought, individuals are going to grow slower. Uh, if, if food is going to be missing, they're going to grow slower. But it's far less intuitive uh, to see that they're able to grow faster uh, than, than what would be their rate in case they're socially challenged. Yeah, that's what you'd assume, that everyone, everyone's already eating to maximum capacity and growing as much as possible. Exactly, that's exactly what we assumed. Uh, like the, and and we, we were really surprised to see that actually it's not the case and that they actually have like uh, a real margin for adjustment and that they're definitely able to boost their food intake and boost their growth. And that was a real surprise, actually. Meerkats are obviously not the only social species. We're a social species. There are lots of other social primates. Um, what implications do you think this might have for, for other species that live in, in social groups and environments? Um, there are many, many mammalian societies, particularly where social status is dependent on size, on weight. It's just very, very common uh, in many male mammals, particularly. And so one may think that uh, there's no reason why it should be different in other species. I think it's very, very possible in male primates particularly, uh, where males fight to uh, reach a higher social rank. I wonder how you could study it in humans. You might have to do, I'm sure you couldn't really, I don't know, could you, could you do an experiment where you feed, you feed one male and a group of friends more hamburgers and you see how often they all go to the gym? <laughs> Well, perhaps something like that, like perhaps it would be interesting to do like in, in groups of um, adolescents where they're really uh, fighting over rank. <laughs> <laughs> that was Elise Houchard, whose paper is available at nature.com slash nature. And comparethemeerkat.com is a real website. Time now for our weekly news chat and Richard Van Norden joins us in the studio. Hi, Rich. Hi, Adam. So the US has been looking at a novel way of trying to halt the spread of mosquito-based diseases. What are they actually looking to do? We have a story this week about using a biopesticide to infect mosquitoes and therefore dampen the numbers in the wild population. The US could soon become the first country to approve the commercial use of this biopesticide. Perhaps it's a bit misleading to call it a pesticide. It's actually a bacterium called Wolbachia. But the company that wants to use it commercially is classing it as a pesticide, something that kills only mosquitoes and leaves other things untouched. So how does it actually work? How do you get this bacteria into the mosquito population? And what does it do once it's out there? So it's not like DDT, you don't spray it. You rear mosquitoes in the lab with a strain of Wolbachia and you release them into the environment. And when they mate with females, the eggs are fertilised, but they don't hatch because the father's chromosomes doesn't form properly. So the bacteria is interfering with how the mosquito is breeding. 
And this is actually being tested um, in a lot of countries. We're focusing on the US because of the EPA approval, which, um, which could be imminent. But we also report that researchers in China are investigating Wolbachia, and they're releasing one and a half million male mosquitoes a week. And they plan to increase that to 5 million per week by the end of August. They have this enormous mosquito factory. I love the phrase mosquito factory. I mean, the concern with any kind of bio tool like this is that it would have some kind of unintended consequences. Are there any such risks in this case that we know of? Well, well, Wolbachia should be very specific to the mosquitoes. There is a question, I suppose, about will this really work in the long term? Will the mosquitoes find a way around the infection? Will the mosquitoes that aren't infected somehow breed better, uh, negating the value of the Wolbachia? But I think what is interesting about the Wolbachia case is that many people have heard of the idea of altering mosquitoes with a gene, genetically modifying the mosquitoes so that they won't breed properly. And there's a company called Oxitec that has been releasing mosquitoes in tests in Brazil uh, again, to dampen the population and to try and stop dengue spreading and latterly Zika spreading. Now, that has uh, prompted lots of public resistance. Oxitex proposed a trial in the Florida Keys in the States, and it's had thousands of public comments into the Food and Drug Administration saying, what are you doing? You shouldn't do this. It's a GM mosquito. How dangerous. Here, we're talking about infecting the mosquito with a bacterium, which basically is the same endpoint. Very few public comments, much wider testing of this in America and China, but it's kind of flown under the radar compared to the GM mosquito approach. Moving on now to our second story of the week, which is again about modifying existing approaches, but in a somewhat different context. This story is about a new approach to quantum computing. We talk about quantum computing quite a lot. But why are we so desperate to build a quantum computer? Basically, quantum computers should be able to zip through calculations. That would take normal computers an incredibly long time to calculate, maybe even longer than the age of the universe. And the reason for this massive power-up and acceleration of performance is that a quantum computer's bits can be both on and off at the same time. So you can imagine performing lots of computations in parallel. So this new approach to building a quantum computer actually uses quite old-school materials, at least as far as computing is concerned, and that's the material silicon. Yeah, we're reporting on these Australian academics who've got some money to build quantum computers in silicon. Now, the point of using silicon is that it is what is used in microelectronics and existing computer systems. So all the billions of dollars that have built silicon fabrication facilities are yours as infrastructure. But how do you build a quantum bit in a silicon that can be both on and off at the same time? Well, their idea is to build quantum bits inside a lattice of silicon atoms. They add in a, a phosphorus atom and they're essentially controlling the phosphorus spins, which is this kind of quantum mechanical property that can be both up and down at the same time. The silicon lattice around the phosphorus kind of protects this superposition of up and down states. That means that the qubits hold their quantum state nearly a million times longer than the alternative proposed qubits. Also, because you're building your qubit in a single atom, you can uh, essentially fit a lot more qubits into the same space. 
Well, this all sounds great. I think you mentioned a million times more stable and also taking a lot less space. So this just sounds, well, why don't we just make our quantum computers like this? The issue is that Google and IBM are well ahead of this silicon team. They're aiming at Google for hundreds of qubits within five years. These Australian guys have demonstrated a system with one qubit, and they say they're trying to link it up into two qubits. But what these researchers are saying is that this level of performance will easily scale up to many qubits. There's no first principle barriers that will stop you scaling up to lots of qubits. At least this is what they told us at an innovation forum in London that, that Nature hosted where the New South Wales physicists were talking. It sounds very promising, but I guess don't throw away your old quantum computer just yet. Right, yeah. If you've got an old quantum computer on the shelf, you know, keep it because it, it might well turn out to be better than these. <laughs> okay, Richard, thank you very much for joining us. You can check out those news stories and others, of course, over nature.com forward slash news. As always, if you'd like to leave us a little review or a handful of stars, please do find us on iTunes or just drop us an email at podcast at nature.com. Next time, explaining Pluto's weird geometric surface. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. If this episode of The Nature Podcast has whet your appetite for scientific research, check out Scientific Reports, the open access home for all scientifically sound research. They publish articles from all areas of the natural and clinical sciences. If you publish with them, you can expect fast and fair peer review and great exposure with over 2 million visitors a month to the website, nature.com srep. If you're one of the visitors, you can expect studies ranging from how to tell apart African from Asian elephant tusks using handheld X-ray devices to a study suggesting that pain tolerance correlates with how many friends you have. For all this and more, visit scientificreports at nature.com slash SREP.